And so Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36, we're entering into the very end of the kind of first Christian sermon. The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, the people of God have been filled with the Spirit. Everybody's been speaking in tongues, prophesying. Everyone in Jerusalem's going, what the heck's going on? Peter gets up, gives the sermon to which we are now entering into the, the back couple minutes of the sermon, which some of you might want to do right now. Just fast forward to the back. Can we, no, okay. I thought that was a funny joke, but I guess not. <laughs> the end of Peter's sermon. Acts chapter two, verse 36. Peter addresses the crowd and says, therefore... Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and he strongly urged them saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, our desire is to see Um, an ongoing pattern of what we read here in Acts chapter two, seen within our time. Uh, Jesus, our desire is that we might, like Peter, communicate the good news of Jesus, you are Messiah and saving Lord in a way that pierces the heart of our city, provoking people to ask, what are we supposed to do about this? God, that we would see repentance and baptism in our time, that we would see Um, God, an assurance of the promises of your forgiveness and the filling of your spirit, and God, a new way of life that looks completely different to the generation that we were formerly part of. Jesus, we want more of this, and so we ask that uh, this morning you would help us as we begin to continue to kind of take these steps and what it means to be this kind of community. And we pray, amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. When it comes to revival... You can't do much better than Acts chapter two. Arguably, it's the first Christian revival or uh, however you would define or whatever word you would use, revival or renewal, outpouring, awakening, whatever language you would use, whatever definition you might hold, Acts chapter two gives us the kind of baseline of what we're talking about when we talk about revival. And here, breaking out into the streets in the city of Jerusalem, we find revival kind of is when the Spirit of God falls on a praying people and brings about, as we see in Acts chapter 2, first, spiritual gifts, manifestations of the Spirit of God, tongues and prophecy in Peter here preaching, that that overwhelms and brings about within people conviction, as we read about that being pierced to the heart, that, 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 that desire of asking the question, what am I supposed to do in light of what I'm feeling internally as a response of what I'm hearing? So there's spiritual gifts and there's conviction, and that conviction turns over to verse 38. We saw conversion, repenting and believing and being baptized, which then turns over into an assurance of faith, a deepening that I am safe in God. Right there, what is it? The promise is for you. 
And then all of this overflows then into, from the assurance of what we have, a, a sanctification, a progressive walking in a way that's different than, as Peter so eloquently put it, this corrupt generation. Whatever you're talking about, when you talk about revival, Acts chapter 2 is the paradigm. It is a new, fresh work of the Spirit of God where spiritual gifts are manifested in new ways that lead to people hearing the gospel in new ways that convicts them, that people are converted and baptized, that people are assured of their salvation, and people take greater, greater steps of sanctification. Whatever you want to call it, that is what revival is. And what we find throughout history is that what we read here in Acts chapter 2 is not like a historical anomaly. This is some kind of, oh, weird thing back then. This is the ongoing pattern throughout history. Every great revival moment has some of these elements or all of these elements showing up in differing ways. Whether it's with 3,000 or 30, when the Spirit of God comes on a people who contend and pursue God in prayer, it shows up in these sorts of ways. Throughout history, this has been the pattern. And what's wild is, um, welcome to your life and your generation, is we are living in a moment where, um, as the Australian uh, pastor and author says, Mark Sayers, that we are living in a moment where these renewal spot fires are springing up all around the world. These fresh movements of God. Some of you, many of you, likely are aware of what we saw in Asbury College um, earlier this year and that springing up in many other different colleges and universities. And yet all the while, not getting any publicity because it's kind of been assumed or expected, is this same kind of work happening within church communities all across the world where the Spirit of God is bringing a fresh work of spiritual gifts, conviction, conversion, sanctification, and assurance. And the wild thing is that that has not just been something at colleges and universities or other churches. It's been what we here at Collective have stepped into over this past summer. Now, for those of you that are, that are new to this, I, or maybe you're like, I, I come every you know, six months or whatever. So I, the last time I was here was just like you know, normal church stuff. I don't know how else to put it, but those of us that have been here on a regular basis know there is a unique work that God has been doing within our church. And it has been all of these same elements of revival. We have seen a fresh work of spiritual gifts being manifested within our community. We have seen a deepening of conviction that's been happening. I remember talking to somebody who uh, was driving home uh, with uh, some of, I think it was his roommates, um, and they were leaving a Sunday gathering, and they said, man, it just feels like every single time I leave church, I just, I at some point experience this kind of, and they, they were trying to find the language for conviction. This heart desire to, to be who God has actually made them to be to live within the life that God has actually given for them. And so there's been this work of conviction. There's been a work of conversion of some of you believing in Jesus for the first time, giving your faith to Jesus. As a side note, like we see in Acts chapter two, the first step in the walk of Jesus is baptism. And so for some of you, we're, we're currently planning, um, don't quote me on this, but we're looking at the beginning of October to have some baptisms in here, which is absolutely wild. <laughs> Um, and so some of you, that's, that's something that you've been thinking through or maybe you want to consider. Just come talk to me before you head out today. We, just, we can process through that um, if, if that would be for you. But we've seen conversion and then we've seen assurance. Some of you in the midst of all of this crazy revival summer that we've had have gone through some of the most crazy like moments of loss and confusion and yet there's been a deeper assurance of God's presence with you than ever before. 
And then steps of sanctification. I just get it. I know this. I know you all. I'm your, one of your, I'm your pastor. I'm one of your pastors. And I have gotten to see the steps of sanctification that many of you are taking. Confessing from sins that you had like half confessed of decades ago. Owning that within the community. And now walking in that. I, we, are, we are in the middle of these renewal spot fires of what Acts chapter 2 embodies. And what is happening around the world right now. And so here's the question I've had over the past month. This is the question, what's next? Now, both pragmatically as like a teaching series, but also just like the life of our church. What is next? Do we do Genesis? Do we do First John? Do we do a four-week series on prayer and as a practice? Like, what a, what a, where, do you, where do you go on the other side of revival? Like this series that we called more, like what, what do you do after more? Where do you go from here? And there's a question that sat with me because for some of you that were raised in um, like, you know, uh, I don't know, middle America, summer, summer, I mean, not middle America, I think all youth groups did this, but like the summer camp experience of so many youth groups. For those of us raised in the church, what happened is at some point in the summer, there would be these buses that would load up with all these smelly teenagers and it would drive out into the wilderness for like an encounter with God. And like all of the elements of revival would take place over the course of this week. All of these teenagers coming out of something, naming things, conviction, assurance, spiritual, get this huge work of God. And then, and then what would happen? Within the weeks after those same buses came back with even smellier teenagers, is like that whole thing would dissipate in the weeks before the school semester even started. And so I, I experienced that over and over again through middle school and high school. And here I am tasting something that's akin to that camp experience. And I'm going like, how many weeks before we just kind of settle back into what's been normal around here? Because I really don't want to do that. And similarly, beyond summer camp stuff, you know, chubby bunny experiments and, you know, mud mountain stuff, whatever, is like this has also been a regular pattern throughout history. God always is the one who brings revival. We do not like manipulate or concoct revival. God is always the one to bring it. But time and again, revivals come and they fizzle out, they fade away, flash in the pan. And so the great truth that I've put together with my summer camp experience and then also just looking at the history of revivals is this big truth, that though the Holy Spirit alone brings revival, we must steward it. We, if we want to see the gift of revival that's been poured out into our community, we must steward it in order to see it become a revival that is sustained and spreads. So... so this is the big question that's been motivating me. How do we, what's on the, what comes after next? What comes after more? Like what, just hear, hear me. What is the genuine difference between Acts chapter two stopping here and that being just, remember that wild weekend in Jerusalem versus 2,000 years later, people are still walking out, preaching and worshiping the God that was proclaimed and resurrected through Pentecost, Right? What's the difference between a wild weekend in Jerusalem and a movement that's sustained over 2,000 years and spreads across ethnic, political, geography all over the place? What's the difference? I got really worried about trying to figure that out. And so then I became really, really grateful that Luke, the author of Acts, actually doesn't stop in his Pentecost story here. Acts chapter 2 has another paragraph we often stop at 3,000 baptized. Woo, revival! And then we're all going, what happens with them now? Luke is so gracious. Look at verse 42. You'll see it behind me. 
they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together, and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed to, uh, the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. We are not meant to stop the revival story of Acts chapter 2 in verse 41 with 3,000 people being baptized. What Luke wants to make, what he gives us this paragraph to show is how that revival became perpetual. How that revival continued. He says, she shows us explicitly, that's what he's talking about in verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe, many signs and wonders, spiritual gifts were being done in this church community. It's a continuation of what began at Pentecost. Similarly, at the very end, you thought 3,000 people getting baptized was crazy. Verse 47, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved, every day. So Paul's whole, or not Paul, Luke's whole point here in writing the Acts, writing this paragraph, is to show how revival gets sustained, how revival spreads, how revival continues beyond just a wild weekend in Jerusalem to the kind of thing that's going to go on not just for 28 chapters, but the next 2,000 years. And what's the invitation that's surrounding all of this perpetual revival are what we could call these eight practices, Eight practices that Luke gives us. And they are, you'll see behind me, right from the passage. One, they do, the apostles' teaching. To the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, holding all things in common, hospitality, meeting house to house, praising God, and then, and then addition or, or growth, that every single day they were being grown. These eight practices are what sustain revival. If you were to sit down this week and read through the rest, just sit down and read Acts from Acts 2 onward to chapter 28. What you would find is remember all of the revival stuff that I talked about, gifts of the spirit, conviction, conversion, assurance, sanctification. You, if you, you, you would find those elements of revival continuing on every single page. And then meanwhile, if you got out a highlighter and you marked every single time one of these eight practices was alluded to or explicitly named, you would have a neon Bible staring back at you. Perpetual revival is found in a people who are devoted to these eight practices. And now hear me here. These eight practices, you can summarize them in one word, and it's the church. This is the life of the local church. I'm not sure what your experience of the church is. That's a lot of muck that we exist within today. I'm going to yell about some of that in a minute. There's <laughs> but the reality is, whatever you think the church is, here you have Acts chapter 2. The beginning of the church is right here, right now. The beginning of the church is Luke describing it right here in verses 42 through 47. What is a church? A church is a people who practice or committed to the apostles' teaching, orthodox belief, fellowship, the life as a family, breaking of bread, communion in the table, praying together in prayer, come to prayer night tonight, holding all things in common as anyone has need, meeting that with care and concern, hospitality, opening our homes up to one another and all within our city 
city, praising God in worship, motivating and driving us. And as all that takes place, addition, more and more people coming in and getting to know the God who's at work within this world. It's the local church. And so hear me here. A church without the spirit at work within it, a spirit without revival in its bones is like a car without gas. You may have all the practices, but without the spirit at work, there's nothing to drive it. But hear me here. Revival without the church is like tanking a, 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 a tank of gasoline, dumping it on the sidewalk and lighting it on fire. It might be bright, it might be exciting, it might be cool, but it's not sustainable and it's not spreading. There and gone. God's chosen vehicle for revival is his local church and the local church is God's chosen means of spreading and sustaining revival over the long haul. And so whatever desire we have to see revival continue within our time, it will be found as we commit ourselves to the eight practices of a local church. Now, there's more to the local church than this. There's some people who would argue that you can summarize these all in just two, teaching and fellowship. There are some that would summarize it in four, whatever. The whole point is, this, this is the framework that he gives us for what sustains renewal for the long haul. Now, what we're gonna be doing then over the next eight weeks is we're entering into a series here eight weeks, eight practices on the other side of the summer of more and this new work that God's been doing is just taking one week on each of these and asking what does it mean for us to practice this as a community, to regain this early church vision of what sustains and spreads revival. Viewing these things through the lens of that, how to sustain revival. How does this become, the local church, become the mean, when we're devoted to these things, become the means that God spreads and sustains the revival work that he's doing. Now, for some of you, though, you've been around collective or you've been around church for a while, and you're like, this kind of just feels like, you know, I want, like, revival oomph. Like, this is like, this feels like we're kind of just going back to normal church stuff. Yes and no. No in the sense that we're not going back to anything. How do I put this? There's a sense where, yes, uh, that... These practices, apart from a unique posture, will always be going back to just kind of playing church. I think we called it like Plato Church back in the beginning of the spring. The difference that unifies them all, Luke gives, he mentions twice, it's a particular posture. It's a particular posture that unifies them all. In verse 42 and verse 46, twice he says, the one posture that sustains all this, you'll see behind me, is that little line, they devoted themselves. Devotion is the spark plug of the fuel of revival in the vehicle of the church. It's it's what ignites it. You got a car without spark plugs, it doesn't matter how much fuel you have and how good of a car you got, you're not going anywhere. Devotion, being the King James Version puts it, uh, steadfastly continuing in something. Obstinate, it can be translated obstinance or stubbornness. This is to be very, 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 very stubborn about something, uncompromising about something. So the posture that meets the practices of the local church is is a posture of, I am devoted to the local church. I am devoted to these eight practices. I am devoted to fostering and being a part of a community where revival can be spread and sustained over the long haul. But devotion is the key element here. And it's the key element that 
is just, is, is, this is why revival has been missing, why it peters out within the American context for so long. And so, what, so the series, let me just set up really quick. The series where we're going over the next eight weeks, um, you'll see again behind me, um, we're just simply calling Devoted. If you want to refer to it as more part three, that's completely okay. <laughs> um, is Devoted, the posture and practices of a spirit-filled people. And so we're going to be looking at over the next eight weeks, each of those practices and specifically what it means for us to be a community that's like stubborn about hospitality, obstinate about devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Like, we, like we'll compromise. We're like, oh yeah, there's some give and take on a lot of things. But when it comes to fellowship and our life together as the family, we don't budge. This, this is how revival gets stewarded. And so we're going to be developing this as we go. And so what I want to do today though, with the time that I have left, is I just want to just consider that, that phrase, they devoted themselves today. Before we get to any of the practices, today I just want to spend some time talking about that posture, setting ourselves up for this, this journey. Because once again, it is the spark plug of all of these practices. Without devotion, you can have all the apostles teaching, all the communion in the world, um, but it's not going to do the thing that God intended it to do. So devotion. We're going to do that by, again, you'll see behind me, um, looking at kind of three, three things today. The necessity of devotion, the pattern of devotion, and then finally the source of devotion. Necessity, pattern, and source. First, the necessity of devotion. Jumping back in Acts chapter 2, don't let the fact that you got 3,000 people getting baptized, and even in verse 47 it's saying they were enjoying favor with all people, like, um, distract you. In the coming pages of the book of Acts, they, that favor would not be um, longstanding. Within just um, two chapters, you're going to have um, some of the leaders of the church be uh, arrested by the Jewish leaders on marks of blasphemy. Just after that, you're going to have people that start coming into the church, seeking to co-op those practices for the sake of their own name and fame. Following that, in just a couple of five chapters from now, there will be a Christian who is going to be stoned to death for his confession in Jesus. So here's the thing. As the story of Acts continues, that pressure only mounts and gets stronger. And so the key posture that sustains the people through the book of Acts is their devotion. That no matter what comes against us from culture, whatever comes against us from the ruling authorities, whether they be the Jewish or the Roman, we are devoted to the life of the church that God has called us into. We're not going to budge on this. Stone us, arrest us if you may. Paul's gonna get shipwrecked and bit by snakes. He's got everything coming after him. Devotion, endurance, perseverance in these things will be what carries them through. It was the great necessity of the book of Acts. And similarly, for us in our time, Devotion is the great necessity of our age. But not because of the explicit pressures that we face from Roman or you know, Jewish religious authorities. Our, our great pressure is far more subtle, but just as dangerous. How, do I, how can I make such a claim like this? We are living through what's been now coined as the great de-churching. The great de-churching. And, and a room like this is, is, is in many ways, sadly, an anomaly of many churches around the country today. And so we're going through what's called the American Great Dechurching. Over 25 years, somewhere around 40 million Christians have like opted to step out from the church. And with it, the eight practices that we would argue sustain revival. And so the question is that we begin to ask, okay, well, that's a lot of people. What led to that? How did that happen? 
And so uh, Jake Meter, in, um, which me and my wife are part of the Jake Meter fan club. It doesn't exist, but if you want to join us. <laughs> he's like, he's in Lincoln, Nebraska, and he's this like pastor, author guy, and he's just... Jake Meter. Um, one, of his, one of his books, um, he only has two, but one of his books is um, one of the recommended resources for the series, In Search of the Common Good. But um, so Jake Meter, um, he got um, uh, kind of picked up to, for, to do an article in The Atlantic about the great churching. And so he brings in all of this research, specifically that these political scientists did with over 7,000 Americans to try to name what's going on within the great churching. And within their research, they found some things that we would, you know, assume based off our understanding of kind of how the church is doing right now. Some people left the church over things like spiritual abuse and um, leadership failures, to which those things, like, 100%, those are absolutely pieces that are going there. And that's something that, like, anyone who knows me, I'm giving my life to at least do some small act of resistance against that. But what's fascinating is the primary reason why this great dechurching has happened is not spiritual abuse, and it's not leadership failures. Over these, all this research that they've done, what Meter kind of brings together, what he calls the misunderstood reason that so many Christians or people have left the church, is what he defies is, is it's simply the fabric of American life in the 21st century that the pressure that we have to pull us away from our devotion to the practices that sustain and spread revival are, is, is just life itself in this culture. Far more subtle, but far more like encompassing than a Roman gladiator. Uh, you'll see behind me one quote from Jake Meter. He writes, contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it's designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages the professional prospects of one's children. Workism reigns in America. And because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add up. The primary pressures that we face, like I said, are not Jewish religious leaders, are not, you know, Caesar and Rome, but just the fabric of what happens to your schedule and your priorities by just like getting on the boat that is life in America in the 21st century. And everything that Meter identifies is true for all Americans. And man, just being in LA, the, the volume is up tenfold for us to prioritize this. And so the simple reality is, it's a, it's a math problem that doesn't add up. And so it will require us to start factoring in different numbers and subtracting certain things. See, the great tragedy in the midst of this developing shift that's happened within American culture is what church leaders did. Rather than doing what I'm trying to do right now and say, we're going to double down and devote ourselves to what's gonna sustain and spread revival, they placated to this culture giving themselves over in their church structures and the way that they do church and the way that they be the church to systems that simply fit better within this. And so churches largely then became what? Gatherings of detached individuals coming together to sit underneath some like religious influencer who's gonna give out like self-help talk stuff and maybe some kind of religious experience completely devoid of the eight practices that spread 
and sustain revival. They're no longer functioning like an Acts chapter two church. And so now, why are we surprised that this many people have walked away? Why are we surprised that revival can't seem to take hold within American churches? Because there's no structure for it to take fire. And so part of what this call to devotion is, is looking at what we have assumed is the way the church works. We've assumed what the Christian life looks like. And to say, man, Lord, help us. We are going to fight. We are going to be devoted. We're going to be obstinate and stubborn about these eight practices. The American dream be damned. Or whatever, that be, whatever that is now. Because it's like owning it. I just know most of the American dream is impossible for us. So it's like however many TikTok followers and, you know, you, you know, your little like Etsy shop or whatever. That's the American dream. Look how far we've come. Oh, so... So Jake Meter writes, one more time, the grade to churching could be the beginning of a new moment for churches. Please, God. A moment marked less by aspiration to respectability and success with less focus on individuals aligning themselves with American values and assumptions. We could be a witness to another way of life outside conventionally American measures of success. Measures of success that are no longer given to us by the culture, but given to us by the work of Jesus in us and for us. And and the more that we buy into this, I think there's a second one. Is there one more? Churches could model better, truer sorts of communities, ones in which the hungry are fed, the weak are lifted up, and the proud are cast down. Such communities might not have the money, success, and influence that many American churches have so often pursued in recent years. But if such communities look less like those churches, they might also look more like the sorts of communities Jesus expected his followers to create. And we would argue today, more like the sort of communities that sustain and spread revival. So this is what we're wanting to enter into, right? This is what we're called to. But here's the thing. This will require devotion. Because you've got a culture that wants to pull that apart. If the enemy can't work through Jewish leaders and Roman centurions, he will just make it so convenient for you to pick anything less than full devotion. So attractive. And so for us to be devoted people, the great necessity of our time is devotion to the church. And for some of you, you think this is weird for a pastor to get up and call this out of you. Here's the thing. I don't give, if it's not collective, this stands true. If you don't feel comfortable, go find another. But if you want to be a part of a community that stewards and spreads and sustains revival, do this at some church. There's no other plan B here. And so this isn't a collective thing. This is a Jesus' local church thing. And so this feels weird for like a pastor being like, you guys should all be more dedicated to the thing that I help lead and am a part of. I, 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 if all of you left and found yourselves planted and rooted and committed and devoted to local churches all over the West Side and over the world rather than here, yes and amen. I am so not here for American measures of success. I want revival to spread in whatever form that takes. The necessity of devotion first. Second, though, is the pattern of devotion. Because here's the thing. This all sounds really good, but it's also kind of terrifying. Because you're like, I'm actually very comfortable in the way that I relate to Jesus in the church right now. I've got like a good thing. We talk every couple months, like when stuff hits the fan, you know, or I just kind of show up, get a little Jesus juice, and then like I walk out the door. Like whatever you've got, this, this, this call is 
is like, you know, I want to be a Christian, but like chill about it. That's kind of what I'm going for here. And that's not what you're talking about, Ryan. That it can be scary when we realize the necessity of devotion and what it will cost us. But the great pattern that we see throughout scripture and throughout history is those who devote themselves to the work of God are the ones that God uses. Second Timothy chapter two, you'll see it behind me. Verse 20. Paul, one of the leaders of this church movement, moving over the face of the world, writes to young Timothy. He's a pastor. And in the middle of the letter, he tells him, now in a large house, there's not only gold or silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be, will be a special instrument set apart, devoted, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Growing up, we had in the dining room this like thing, cabinet thing with glass on it. It's not a credenza. I don't know furniture. It's a glass thing and you could see the stuff that's on the inside. And most of what it was in there was like my mom's like, you know, fine china that came out like twice a year. And then also a bunch of my mom's, she collected these like precious moments ceramics. Did any of your parents have those? Things? They're terrifying. <laughs> Giant heads. And, and, and so... Anytime you would like run through the house and you're playing, there was always the like big glass cabinet with the plates that only came out for like two times a year and then all of the weird faces, you know, staring off at you and you just run out of the room because they're, they're haunted. We knew they were haunted. <laughs> okay, so most of us grew up with some form of that. Even if it wasn't some kind of cabinet, there's like the dishes and then there's like the special occasion dishes, right? When grandma comes over, whoever. It's birthday, New Year's, Christmas. And that's exactly the image that Paul is pulling from here. In a great house, he's talking about the church. He looks over the church and he says, there are some who are here for dishonorable use and some are honorable use. Now, what, what's, what's going on here? This can be confusing because it seems as though if it's the way that we understand dishonorable and honorable use is though Paul's like, there are some in the church who are like set apart for sin and some who are set apart for like, you know, Righteousness, like honorable, it's honorable, which wouldn't make much sense because it's like, Paul, the, the church, everybody should be devoted to the honorable stuff then, right? Does that make sense? Everybody's like, that's kind of weird. Okay. If you have your Bible uh, with you, you'll probably see a footnote next to honorable and dishonorable that pulls out what Paul's more likely attributing to is this language of honorable and dishonorable is more akin to what we would say like ordinary or special. And so he says, in the church, there are some who have just set apart and set themselves over for, for the ordinary stuff of the church. And there are some who have set themselves apart for a special, unique work of God. As I read one week, one person said that this, Paul is not talking about mere obedience, but a rejection of mediocrity. A rejection of mediocrity. The kind of posture that says, I'm not looking for Cruise control, like what's kind of the, the best I can scratch at when it comes to my relationship with God and my devotion to the church, but someone who is in full self-surrender to all that God wants to do in their lives. Purifying themselves from the ordinary, setting themselves apart from the ordinary rhythms of ordinary life to be the language of, of consecration, set apart, devoted for a particular work that God wants to do within the world. And they're saying, God, I don't know what that is, but I'm setting myself apart because I want to be a part of it. And the pattern, the promise of 2 Timothy is in that if and will language. 
If anyone purifies himself from anything ordinary, he will be a special instrument. If he will. There's no guessing game behind our devotion. I wonder if I go above and beyond what most people would consider normal Christianity, would that just be, am I just making myself uncomfortable for no reason? If he will. If you set yourself apart for a unique work of God in and through you, he will. It may not be the way that you want that to look. It may not involve stages and lights, which sounds weird right now, but like, it might not, whatever you think that would look like. But if you do, he will. And so the invitation to devotion is one that is based on a pattern that Paul here pulls from, calling Timothy too, but one that like you just go through the Bible and you find time and time again. Some of you know the story of David being anointed as king back in 1 Samuel. I've just been reading through 1 Samuel and I just, I, it's, it's insane and good. And sometimes it feels like it's the same story over and over again as Saul's chasing David through the desert. Um, for some of us that have read 1 Samuel, that's very funny for the rest of you. That was just for me. <laughs> The, so David is getting anointed as king and the priest prophet Samuel comes to anoint someone as king, but he doesn't know it's David. He doesn't know who it's gonna be. And so David's dad brings out all of the brothers and they all line up, right? And he makes his way through and there's, there's you know, brother handsome, there's brother strong, there's the courageous leader. He's got facial hair. Like, look at the shoulders on that one. And down the line goes, Samuel is like, God, is it this one? He's like, sure, God. Okay, yeah, it's this one. And God goes, no. Okay, gets the next one. No, God, no. All down the line of all the seemingly would be best fit to be kings of God's people. No, 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 no. Is there anybody else in the family? Yeah, the littlest brother. He's out smelling like sheep, scrawny out there. And Samuel says, bring him. And as soon as he walks up, God speaks to Samuel and says, that's him. And the whole point is Samuel has this conversation with God of like, what is going on along the way? And, and he says this. God tells him that humans look on outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What qualifies a person for a unique work of God to steward, spread, and sustain revival in their lifetime is not their influence, it's not how impressive they are, it's not their income, or like what I heard about one church this week that made me want to put my blenders in an ear, it is not how physically attractive they are, God have mercy. Like that's literally the opposite of what that whole story is about. The thing that qualifies someone for a unique work of God in their life is a, what does it say about David? A heart, what is he? He's a man after God's own heart. Is a heart that's fully devoted to God, that surrenders and says, all of my life is committed to the work that you wanna do. And so that's not just Timothy. It's not just David. You look at the Rechabites. You look at the Nazarites. You look at the priests. You look at Hannah and her contending prayer. You look at Jacob and his wrestling with God. Simeon and Anna waiting in the temple to see the Messiah. You go down the Isaiah. Who shall we send? And Isaiah's send me, I'll go. Time and again, the person that God uses to spread, sustain, and, and steward a revival work that he wants to do within a generation is the people that actually have the heart to say, whatever it costs, God, I want to be in on what you're doing. And so it's a pattern that's established so that when we're calling, when I'm calling us all into this devotion, it's not something that we're throwing spaghetti at the wall, hoping that something sticks. It's an if they purify themselves from what is dishonorable and ordinary, they will be a special instrument in their master's hands. 
And so the invitation is this. I, um, I debated including this, so we'll see. Um, a couple years back, um, I had this kind of like church leader um, conference that I went to um, down in Costa Mesa. And um, my buddies that are part of this kind of church network, I'm there just to hang out with my friends. And um, we're kind of sitting in on stuff and they're like, oh, they had this breakout. That's called the prophetic prayer room. And you like sign up for a slot in the prophetic prayer room. And I'm like, okay, you guys have fun, you know? And like, no, man, you got it. Trust me, you got it. Like they do it every year now. I'm like, you got to do it. So I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay, so I, I, we sign up. I go in with, with my three buddies and um, it's this tiny little like kids class, like Sunday school classroom with the tiny bright little chairs that like you sit, like your knees are up by your chest. And... Um, we walk in and sitting in those three little chairs are these like little Betty White looking prophetesses <laughs> that um, are just sitting there waiting for me. And I'm like, okay. And so they, they go in turn for all of us and um, each by one we, we come and we'll kind of sit next to them and they just like sit and stare at you for a while in the silence. You can like tell they're praying but they're like looking right at you and you're like, like, can, we, can we just close our eyes and bow our heads, please? Like, they're, like, looking at you. And so, you know, with each of my buddies, they would have something that they would share, and, you know, one of us would be sitting, listening in, and kind of just jotting notes. So the other guy had it. And um, these three elderly women, in turn, kind of the summary of, of, of what their prayer kind of took the form of was um, they kind of began by um, affirming me. They said, Ryan, um, that God has given you a unique ability to listen to his voice. And he has a specific obedience that he's calling you into. Like, I don't want, you know, like, what? What does that mean? Um, so like the Rechabites or the Nazarites, there is a unique pathway that God is calling you to that will consecrate you for the deeper work he wants to do through you. And they said, basically, that if, if you take heed to his voice, then, and they pulled from um, a passage in, in 1 Timothy, um, where they said, your, your witness will be an example to all and your, um, or your example will be, will be for all and your, your witness will be heard um, by all. And then they just, one of the, the last one, and she said, Jesus is calling you. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid, but come. And so I'm just like, okay. Now I share all this to say, and this, I kind of debated sharing it because my, my intent here is not like, oh, Ryan had probably, like, I just sat there, right? And, and even more, I'm still like, you know, tripping my way through, walking in exactly what that prayer entailed and what that's about. So I'm not saying that this, Ryan's got this figured out. I just, I, I deeply want to show you all that the pattern of devotion here is one that just, it just continues throughout history. It's not just on the pages of scripture. It's, it's something that's an ongoing work. Those who devote themselves to God, God does a particular unique work with. Those who are willing to say, I don't care if it looks reckless. I don't care what surrender entails. I want to set myself apart for the work that God wants to do in my life. So it's the pattern. And then finally, the source, the source, the source of our devotion. What is gonna be the kind of thing that drives these people in their devotion for the pages to come? Through shipwreck, through arrest, through all that they might encounter, what is going to hold these people through their devotion, what's going to uphold them. And for us, what's going to, what's going to be the thing that motivates us through that? Uh, verse 38, excuse me, 39. It's that one line in the middle of the sermon. 
after talking about the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, you'll see, I think it'll be behind me, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. The source of devotion, the source that will drive a, a heart that is stubbornly con- like set on all that God wants to do within this world and within your life is a heart that has first found its source in the promise of God, the devotion of God. When you realize that the sin-forgiving, spirit-filling promise of God is for you, for the next generation, and for this world, that becomes the truth that you grab yourself onto and becomes the anchor point for your devotion through no matter what your life throws your way. The thing that will, can only serve as any source is not payment. If you're trying to attain something, if you're trying to earn something through your devotion, sooner or later, it's, it's gonna get tiring. Sooner or later, it's gonna run out. But when your devotion is rooted in something that already belongs to you, then you're simply just running in light of what you, what you already have in your back pocket. And so what we find within here is the kind of devotion that stewards, spreads, and sustains revival is the kind of, of devotion that is rooted in the promise and devotion of God. And so, one, we, 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 the stewardship of revival, the stewardship is, is, is first and foremost a, a reception of the prom, that the promise of God is for you. For, for you. The, the work that God wants to do within this world is not just a work he wants to do through you, it's a work that he wants to do in you. A sin-forgiving, spirit-filling work that God wants to do you, in you. And our participation is to receive that work as we devote ourselves into the practices that make up the local church. You, I, I'm, I'm, I know it sounds weird for a pastor to say it. You go read the Bible and come back and tell me otherwise. You cannot find an experience that the promise that comes through here of the forgiveness of sins and the Spirit filling you apart from the local church. It's, it's found in community. As much as it's for you, it's found in community. And so part of these eight practices are because I want to commit myself to a way of life where this can be found. Next, it's not just for you, it's also for your children. It's for the next generation. You know what will motivate your devotion is realizing that that there presently already exists a promise, a sin-forgiving, spirit-filling promise of God that resides over the heads of all those little ones right now banging themselves with, with toys and throwing books at one another and potty training. To realize over all of that mess and all of that what feels like inconvenience is a promise of God that I am calling them my spirit filling them, my, them finding the forgiveness of sins resides over them, then I will absolutely devote myself to a life both as a parent but also just as an individual member of this community to building the sort of church with the sort of practices that make a space for them to find the promise of God over their life. And so for parents, this, this is for you, not just in, in, in the church but every single morning when you're waking up, devoting yourselves to your children, finding and knowing that that promise hangs over their life. For those of you that don't have kids, we share in this work together. And so this all comes together and us devoting ourselves to these eight practices are like, this might be just, maybe some of you think connecting the dots too much, devoting ourselves to our children's ministry. Serving within it, not as like a, um, hey, let's all share the load because we know it sucks. And so let's all just like make, let's all make, if you do it this week, I'll do it this week. 
It's not ba- to see we're devoting ourselves to this ministry because we're devoting ourselves to the God who's devoted himself to them. And the primary way that he wants to do that is through you. What a wonderful gift to be able to participate in some way in someone's story of finding God and God finding them. And so the way that revival is sustained over the generations is by the parents of every single generation choosing, as a community choosing for the children of their community, we are going to devote ourselves to the practices that will allow these children to experience and find that the promise of God is for them. And then lastly, the promise of God is not just for you, it's not just for your children, it's for all who are far off. The source of our devotion is not just this promise of God for us, it's not just for our children, but as we look out at our city and our world, all who are far off means all who are far off. And so why do we give ourselves to this kind of devotion, to this kind of building, this kind of church community, and to being a place that sustains revival and carries it and stewards it so it might spread and be found by others within our city? Peter's language is to be saved from this corrupt generation. And right after being saved from a corrupt generation, they devote themselves to the practices that will will portray and give people an opportunity to come out of it for themselves. I don't know how you think God is gonna go forward within this world. I don't know how you think that that revival is gonna spread to the people that live in your neighborhood. He's gonna do it through you and he's gonna do it through this community if we devote ourselves. And so once again, the great gift in all of this, the source of this all is that we're not devoting ourselves to earning anything. We're devoting ourselves to a promise that's already been given. And so as we give ourselves over, what we find is we're not making God do anything. We just find ourselves being recipients of the thing that God always wanted to do and was waiting for someone who finally said, send me, I'll go. And what this series is going to be, some of you are gonna wanna continue to play by the the consumeristic standards of the church. My prayer is that you wouldn't, but I know that'll likely be the reality. But for some of us, we want to devote ourselves to seeing what we've experienced over this summer be sustained and spread over the generations and over the face of our city. And this is gonna be us entering into that. Why? Because we believe the promise of God that that's precisely what he wants to do. Let's pray.